Welcome to The Hub. I'm Michelle Hope, your unapologetic sexologist. It's another amazing episode. I'm your girl, Michelle Hope, and you are tuned in to the most unapologetic sexologist. That's right, it's me. And it is another episode of Sexpert Positions. I have the pleasure. I mean, I'm always bringing you guys amazing people. And today is no different. I am sitting with Dr. Jess, international, globe-trotting, award-winning, sexpert, relationship coach, and damn it, she's beautiful. I mean, and just a lovely person to be around. Welcome. Welcome, Jess. How are you? Excited to be here. I know, right? So I wanted to say, because, you know, I'm unapologetic, but I I do like to pull back. Um, I hated you when I first found you. <laughs> I was I was so jealous. I was like, ooh, look at this beautiful woman doing everything I want to do. And then I got the opportunity to meet you at the Sex Expo in New York. On the street. I came up to you on the street. We ran into each other yeah. on the street. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm so glad you did. I know, right? Isn't it funny when you think about it? Because I was like, ooh, I hate this person. And then I was like, <laughs> I saw you. And I was like, let me just say hello. And you were the most pleasant, amazing person and we immediately connected because you said to me my background is in education um and and before we get into your background being in education and sex education i want to get into your personal background because as everybody knows i'm some sort of angela davis of sex stuff and i really enjoy looking at race culture and how it impacts sex and sexuality so can you kind of tell us who you are where you're from yeah so i'm a canadian you might hear from my accent yeah we like that (laughs) and uh my mom's chinese from jamaica my dad is irish and so culturally i'm i draw more from the chinese side and the jamaican side and you know we were just chatting off air i have this interesting experience of um passing in mm-hmm. some circles mm-hmm. not in all circles mm-hmm. and constantly having to come out with my race with my ethnicity and so I think I hear so much racism because they forget or don't realize mm-hmm. what my background is so the other day I'm at a show uh, like a, a sex show which is a, a trade show in Canada we have these huge trade shows consumer facing trade shows that everybody comes to like you know, people who work at the grocery store and doctors and teachers and everyone comes at 20,000 people in each city come out to these shows to hear education, to buy products, to see the burlesque performers, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, this guy comes up to me and we're going to another show in Vancouver, which is the West Coast. And he says to me, let me give you some advice. Love when old white guys give me advice. (laughs) That's the best advice. Unsolicited advice, right? And he says, uh, in Vancouver, I, you should play to the Asian market. And I'm thinking, well, I kind of am the Asian market, but all right, what's this guy have to say? And he's like, well, they're just dying for information, and they, they're so green, they don't know anything. I'm like, oh, tell me more. Tell me more about your assessment of the one billion Chinese people and other Asian people, on right. multi-billion of right. us. And he's like, well, he, this guy, I don't know how old he is, 50s, 60s, he says, oh, those Chinese girls. They're like little animals once you get them. And I am speaking verbatim. I am not paraphrasing. Like, I, I remember because it was so offensive. Animals? Yeah, little animals. Little animals. Then he says, like, once you get them on a string, literally, you say jump, they say how high. I love that he's saying they because I'm like, well, you're actually talking to me. But at this moment, you clearly don't see me as right. Chinese. Right, right. And um, tell me more. Tell me more. And well, my friends are dating some 23-year-olds and 24-year-olds. And I'm thinking, well, your 50- and 60-year-old friends are dating 23-year-olds and 24-year-olds. 
there's probably a power imbalance there. Clearly. Uh, and in, and so I say something kind of like under my breath. I'm exhausted. It's it's a long show. I give 14 speeches this weekend. So wow. I'm emotionally exhausted. My feet are hurting. My boss pretty racist. And he and just keeps going and going. And so I have this weird experience yeah. of hearing the racism almost like a white person and then coming out and saying, well, I'm Chinese. Yeah. Right? And the stereotypes around basically anything that isn't white and anything that isn't Western yeah. run rampant. Like, they'll say to me, oh, I did a tour in China recently, a speaking tour, and they're like, oh, they must need it there. Oh, how do you know they need it? Have you been to China? Have no. you lived in China? Were you raised by Chinese parents? Because China, the Chinese developed Taoism, the Tao of love and sex. I mean, China, the Chinese have a much longer history of sexual openness than North Americans, but we have this ethnocentric belief that like we are the most liberal and we are the most open and we know everything in these poor other repressed cultures and we don't realize how repressing we are to ourselves right and that's i feel like speaking of repressive to ourselves you do a lot of work in relationships and i feel like looking at your career you talk about how that repressiveness can negatively impact relationships so why, you know, it's sex with Jess, but why do you feel like we are so repressive? I mean, there, there are so many reasons. If, if you look like at history, in some places it's religion. In other places, it's, it's control and colonization. Yeah. Uh, how can we control these bodies that we assume are hypersexual yep. because they don't look like us? Uh-huh. Um, and if you look around the world, when you look at laws around sexuality, around nudity, it came from the colonizers. Yeah. And they still exist today. Like I was using the example of Jamaicans. People think of Jamaican culture as, oh, they're just smoking weed and, and you know, twerking it out. And I'm like, mm, actually, if you go to Jamaica, many people are very conservative. Yeah around sex and around the way you dress and I remember like as a kid so I'm from Toronto I bartended for a gazillion years you basically bartend almost in a bikini right by the time you get down to it that would have never been acceptable in Jamaica I remember like you know in my late teens early 20s being there and the type of clothes I even wore in Toronto wouldn't have been appropriate for Jamaica unless you're on the beach right so we have these ideas about countries because we went to an all-inclusive resort <laughs> People will come back from Jamaica and they'll be like, oh, everybody's so happy there. I'm like, okay, you know, it's their job to be happy for you. Right. They're serving. It's a service industry. Right. With a minimum wage that's the equivalent of about 40 U.S. dollars a week or 50 U.S. dollars a week. Wow. That's what you're paid to be happy. That was was probably less than what we just spent on breakfast. Which is scary. It's sad. Yeah. It, It is sad. And I think that, unfortunately, through that kind of repressive culture that's happening all over the world. I think for me, because I look at, again, kind of the health and wellness around sex, that's why we see disparities, I believe, the health disparities, STIs, HIV, maternal mortality. Um, But, you know, what got you into this work? Like, how do you become you? How do you, what was your path to get here? I I mean, where I am today was an accident. Um, So I was a high school teacher. And I had, I was working with what the language at the time was at risk youth, youth at risk in downtown Toronto. So my students were 16 to 21. Most of them didn't have a lot of high school credits. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of them were mandated to school Mm -hmm. um, by probation, uh, in and out of the system. Parents who 
you know, maybe stole their welfare check. So at 16, you kind of get kicked out of the house yeah. because your parents can't collect for you anymore and you need to collect for yourself. So, you know, put in circumstances that, you know, I never had to go through. Right. Right. And people will say, like, well, why? You know, they're not working hard or they're not motivated. I'm like, because they're working in a movie theater at night from minimum wage till midnight. When do you want them to do homework? How do you want, expect them to get up in the morning and make it to school? Yeah. So uh, so I was working and, uh, you know, young people were already living with boyfriends and girlfriends as a matter of financial survival. Yep. Student welfare is 600 bucks a month. Yep. In a city where the average price of a home right now is $1 million in Toronto. Wow. Canadian, but still, you know, I don't know, 800000 U.S. So there's a big disparity between $800,000 to own a home and $600 a month. At the time, I would say a one-bedroom apartment would have cost you about 1400 a month. Wow. So how do you make ends meet? Why are you selling drugs? Why are you doing these things? Well, because I have to survive. Right. And at 16, so they're coming to me in unhealthy relationships, in abusive relationships, with unplanned pregnancy, with STIs, not knowing where to go. And we have a public health, a public school and a public health care system in Canada where these things are actually, we can address them. Right. Um, school is accessible. Healthcare is accessible. There are still, you know, stratifications that make it less accessible. But if you need to go to the doctor in Canada, you can just go to the doctor. You right. don't even you can lose your health card. You don't need parental permission. Right. We live in a city where we have public transportation and we provide um, tickets for them Metro to get on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I said, you know, we got to do better. We need to improve not the sex ed system itself that can always use improving, but we need to improve supports for teachers because as a teacher, only fifteen percent, fifteen point five percent of teacher preparation programs across Canada at the time were providing mandatory training in sexual health. Oh wow! So these teachers are expected to teach this highly divisive, personally challenged topic, challenging topic. Of course, with no textbook, with no like trauma informed in anything. Well, it's better than the U.S. because we're not doing anything. Right, and it's different in Canada because our curriculum is mandated at the ministry level, meaning at the, we call it like provincial level, so okay. the equivalent of your state level here. So it's okay. not like school boards making individual decisions or right. principals making individual decisions. Um, I went back to school, did my research in supporting teachers. Um, so how do we support teachers to improve their knowledge and comfort level with the topics that are of greatest interest to youth in Canada? So we, look, we used a Toronto study, uh, like a, a multi-university study, and we looked at the topics of healthy relationships, mm-hmm. HIV, AIDS, and sexual pleasure, because those were the topics that youth ranked as the most, most important. important. So how do we support teachers? Anyhow, graduate, do this research. And think, oh, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a job consulting with the school boards. There's no <laughs> jobs in that. They, they, they left me out of the room um, because I also talked about pleasure. I remember getting an email from the representatives at the school board. Uh, we are a fact-based curriculum. I'm like, well, do you really know any facts around? Like, can, can you tell me? Is pleasure not a part of sex? Right. One of the things I always tell students is if you're not enjoying it, you should not be doing it. And I feel like that is a part of the problem. If they're saying we are a fact-based curriculum, mm-hmm. yo, the fact is if you don't like it, mm-hmm. if it does not feel good, mm-hmm. you probably need to stop right. doing and, it. And think about how that affects our notions of consent. Hello. Like, if we can make pleasure the measure of consent. I think pleasure the measure came from, so I can acknowledge the person, Emily Nagoski. Okay. Who wrote Come As You Are. I remember her saying, like, when pleasure is the measure, so many of our sexual issues and relational issues can be more easily addressed. Anyhow, so I couldn't get a job. That's basically it. So I started writing. I uh, started doing some TV segments. Probably had the advantage of being in Canada, which is a smaller market. So I was able to, you know, get on TV, get right. on the news. Not the same competition. And... Uh, 
realized that I'm not going to make a living if I'm trying to just work in these schools, get a consulting job that doesn't exist. So I started doing corporate work around relationships and how relationship research applies in the workplace. And yeah. I love I love that. I, I really do enjoy the relationship stuff more than just the sex because neither exists in a silo. Right. So, or in a, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. So now I do the corporate work and I have a really fun job and that supports my ability to volunteer in schools so now now the schools let me in and they uh, I, I train the teachers in the in the teacher preparation programs at the University of Toronto in Canada nice um, so that's all volunteer and I'm lucky to be able to do that and from a business perspective it's funny I was saying it that the other night but I had a client in the car but I will tell corporate clients that like no I, I don't negotiate here because that takes away from the school so yeah. my business is working a lot with corporations with brands speaking because that's what I like to do and then volunteering I mean see this is why I hated you because I love you and I just am so inspired hearing your story it's my hope one day somebody is interviewing me and I'm talking about the same thing because we share I think so you're there we, oh my thank you I think you're we, there. we share so much like um, you know a lot of times I live a double life, right? So I don't tell people when people follow MH Sexpert. A lot of times, the DMs they think that that is my all-day job because I do not put uh, my young people on my social media just because it's to keep them safe. To and I don't think anybody cares about a sex ed teacher. However, I do. Um, I know. See, yeah. I know somebody's out there, but. What I'm hearing you say is all the things that I am passionate about, really helping people understand from the womb to the tomb, from the boardroom to the bedroom, sex and sexuality is a part of your everyday life. And um, that is something that I love to educate people about. Um, you go all over the globe, and when you're doing these corporate lectures on healthy relationships, do you find that sex questions come up? And if so, what is the best sex question you've gotten from a corporate uh, event? So at corporate, corporate events, we're not talking about sex. Um, but I also work with executives and entrepreneurs in a non-corporate environment. So like okay. groups and membership organizations. Okay. So there we can talk about sex because it's not the workplace. Right. And the sex always comes up. Um, always. <laughs> always. I'm trying to think the most interesting. Okay, I can tell you a wild question that is not from corporate. Okay. So I was down at a resort. I, I do a lot of different things. My job's pretty dynamic. Yeah. Um, so I'm down at this resort in Mexico. It's clothing optional, couples only resort called Desire Resorts. Desire Resorts. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty cool. And this lady comes up to me. And I, I guess she's in the lifestyle, so they're, they're swingers. Mm -hmm. The resort is not primarily swingers, but this woman happened to be a swinger. And she says to me, I'm seven months pregnant, and I'm having trouble with DP. Wow. Well, of yeah. course you're having trouble with DP. There's not a lot of space down there right and now. My husband's there. He's like, what's DP? And so she's like, double penetration, silly. Duh. <laughs> like, duh. He's like, I'm married to a sexologist. I don't know anything. So... Yeah, so that was a that one has stuck with me for many years. Do you think that's ever going to be topped? Seven months pregnant. I just want to know how did you give her, like, I, first of, if somebody asked me that, I would be like, well, let's talk about your uterus and and um and the spacing location of what's going on. So you have a a cantaloupe, <laughs> and you're trying to fit two andouille sausages 
in that space and there's just I not think she was using two spaces no in yeah, that's what i meant yeah. in that overall space yeah. so the back door front door yeah. There's no, there's no room for two andouille sausages. Doesn't matter if you got you're trying to put them in one space or two spaces. Because I have seen DP where it's two, one space. It's one space. I just assumed she was using two. I don't know how she could get. I don't know. I, you, I, I, you could be very. Yeah, because right. I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking about like how, like I'm visualizing how that would fit because everything down there is there's just less space when you're seven months pregnant. Well, and how do you move around? So she ended up using a swing. That's how we. Oh, she would have to most definitely. There's a playroom there, and there's a swing. So when you when you think about an expertise question like that, I have less expertise than she does. Right, I've she's never, the expert. Right, and I've I never tried to do DP seven months pregnant. Yeah, um, I've never tried to do P, DP no pregnant. Yeah, I'm, I call myself a penis blocker. I'm like, I don't need two. It's that's a lot. Yeah. So let me. How about this? This is something I get often as a sexologist. Um, do people ask you about your personal sex life? So they do, and I don't tend to answer. And so that's always, even when I work with youth, uh, like if we do a question session, I say you can ask any question you want, but I don't take personal questions about my life. Right. If it's if it's something that helps them and is thoughtful, and I don't feel as though I'm being sexualized or objectified or held to a specific standard, yeah. I might be open to it. Like if a kid says to me, not a kid, but if a person says, like, you you know, you look so happy with your partner after all these years, what's the secret? Like, that's the type of question oh, I might be open to. Yeah. Um, one thing as a sexpert, as you know, is there's a fine line between talking about sex and being sexually objectified. Actually, it's not that there's not a fine line, but people tend to walk that line. Like, I know that line. If I feel uncomfortable, I feel uncomfortable. Uh, I don't, you know, I feel sexy, but I, I don't want to feel sexual with strangers. I'm... I'm, I'm tired. You know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm tired of talking about sex. Right. So people ask me personal questions, and sometimes I answer them. Like, I have a podcast. Yeah. And my partner, Brandon, who is much more likable than me, apparently. He's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, he is gorgeous. gorgeous. And, and so nice. Just so nice. And amazing. So funny and so lovely. So anyhow, he's my co-host, so sometimes we will answer personal questions because people are curious about you, right? They see you on Instagram. They see me posting yep. pictures of him and they yep. want to get to know him a little bit. Yep. And I'll tell you, like one thing I struggle with is I'm not always that open. Like, yeah. I'm on stage a lot. And then there's a part of me that just really wants to like be alone and be yeah, private. Yeah. And um, sometimes it can feel, it feels so good that people are so interested in you, but it also can feel violating when you feel like you never get to just be alone or exhale yeah. yeah and so with Brandon on the podcast it's changed things for me because with him by my side he's not in the field at all he's never worked with me in the past but I feel like I'm able to open up a little more I think because I feel safer safer yeah. yeah yeah and he puts me at ease and he like there's Jess me as a person and I think sometimes there's Dr. Jess the brand hello I know and, that life and that's hard because they'll always you know explain to you that if you're in the public eye what they want is authenticity and you want to be authentic, but you also want to protect yourself. Self-preservation. You know, like crazy wild things happen to us where people attack us. Like if you go watch, I have a TED talk called Monogamish. Yeah. If I accidentally read the comments once and I was crying. Girl, never read the comments. No, I know. And people <laughs> say the meanest things. And I'm like, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. I screw up all the time. And because I'm in the public eye, you get to see my screw ups. Yeah. And... 
I'm just trying to help people. Like I'm in this field because I think that if I can, you know, send messages around normalizing behavior, around helping people feel good about themselves. Like mm-hmm. I don't have, I don't have a magic pill. Right. Um, I have lots of strategies, and not all of them will work for you. But I'm, I'm trying to help. Right. Like that. That's you know Google's mantra is don't be evil. Uh, Google, that's Google's mantra. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But that's my, interesting. You know, ours is ours is like help people, try and help. Right, and sometimes that means we can answer a question. Sometimes that means we can refer them to a therapist. Sometimes that means providing a resource. And we're just here trying to help. And we we are putting ourselves out there in a way that makes us open to personal attacks. And that's that's tiring. So I I don't know about you, but once so I love my job. I have a very cool job. But like I know, I know how lucky I am. I don't know how long this can last, but I know how good life is. I feel like it's gonna last for a long time for you. Well, yeah, I'm a believer. I, I mean, I really like it. But let me tell you this. Every week I want to quit. Every week I'm like, you know, I get an email or somebody's tweeting at me saying, making wild accusations or getting mad at me for making a mistake. Um, and I'm like, you know, it's, it's tiring. I'm like, why, why do this when it feels like the feedback is all negative? And then I'll say that. Like, I, I had some pretty bad attacks last week. and I For what? Oh, Lord. I can't even, uh, I, I, there's one thing where somebody accused me of something absolutely outlandish, um, their own paranoia. I don't even know this person. Oh. Uh, so it was wild. Anyhow, I, you know, I take things too personally, probably. Like, I'm pretty sensitive. I'm not as thick-skinned as I should be. Actually, I'm not thick-skinned at all. I think because I'm a little loud and I sound confident on stage. And right. I, I, like, I can own a stage. I can own a room. People think that I'm not sensitive or that, um, like, I have a thick skin. Mm-hmm. But I, I am. And, you know, it's hard not to take things personally. So, anyhow, I posted about it on my Instagram about how upset I was. And... Like the messages of love and support roll in and you forget there's all these people who are cheering for you and and it's very moving yep. and listen, you have to take care of yourself first and so I have to follow that advice too and that's why sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I can keep fighting this fight right? because, you know, it, it's tiring and... Um, the job is fun, but it's also exhausting. You know, like I, I do get to travel to really cool places, but sometimes I'm, I'm giving a speech till midnight and then I'm getting up at six in the morning to hop a flight and giving another speech till midnight. And so you can, you can get tired. I know. Right? I would love tired. that tired. It is fun. I know it is. <laughs> it is I fun. know it is. And it all is the fun. places you've seen, I think that, um, you know, I understand the like, uh, life kind of space where it's like, oh, you're MH Sexpert or you're Miss Michelle at school. And then there's just Michelle, right? Like the, who I am. I try to turn off. For me, what's hard is keeping up with social media. Like I am not good at making stories. And like, you know, like the Instagram story and posting and I am terrible at that. Mm, but when I see you, it looks great. Uh, thank you. Stories can be raw. It's the, it's the pic, like stories can be messy. Yeah. If you ever see my stories, it looks like I, you know, I'm shaking and vibrating. Uh, but the pictures and stuff, I always, I'm like, oh, I don't want to post a picture. I just... Right? I always I, have great messages, but not yeah. the pictures. Sorry, I interrupted. No, I do it for the comments. Okay, so a you couple things. do it things. for the gram? I do it for the gram. Um, I do it because the inboxes, the DMs I get, they crack me up. Like, I don't know these people, but I try to respond to my DMs. <laughs> I try very hard. Some of you, you might still be waiting. But one, 
I rarely get disrespectful DMs, so I, I thank all my mm -hmm. supporters for that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. They know they cannot send me dick pics. Right. Um, I appreciate Blocked. them. Blocked. Yeah, not even. I just cuss them out. I'd be like, please, like, like you, like, not in a rude way. I'm like, yeah. you're That's violating funny. me. I need you to learn because I need to meet people where they are you so can I can rude. help them get to where they need to be. So it's kind of, I am like snarky, like, you know what? Nobody wants to see your penis. But then what I've also done is I have opened up a window of time where I we might be with my girlfriends. We might be out having cocktails. I'll be like, I'm taking dick pics for the next 30 minutes really? and we'll rate you. And so then me and my friend, but they know you it's got consensual. More, you have more penile generosity than me. Like, but, <laughs> but then it's, I'm not taking any more penis pics. So if I've learned that if you give them a space to like get it out and then me and my friends will like send back little messages like, ha ha, thank you for that. We appreciate you being open. And, and it, it's funny, it's fun. And it allows people this opportunity to kind of be kinky. Now I don't post any of the penis pics, obviously. And then you don't do not feel violated because you gave them permission. Yeah, it's consent, and that goes back to teaching people how you want to be treated. That's so subversive and brilliant. Yeah, that's because. So for me, I I love men, right? I love men. I love all men. Um, I had a very complicated relationship with my father growing up, um, and because of that, I have very complicated uh, relationships with lovers um, because my dad and I are like be best friends in a tomboy kind of way like mm -hmm. it's almost like I feel like he wished he'd had a boy so mm -hmm. he treats me like a boy mm -hmm. so when we get together it's cigars golf gun range that's what we do oh America yeah. oh America <laughs> right a Canadian like, I'm like gun range yeah not uh, that we uh, don't have gun ranges and, but. <laughs> and you know um, there have been times in the past where my dad was not as healthy as mm -hmm. he is now mm -hmm. both emotionally mentally and physically he had mm -hmm. some um, addiction issues so when I was in my 20s we would party together like mm -hmm. frat boys mm -hmm. or like you know we would we would hit these streets like like OGs you know dice on a corner uh, rolling blunts like we would get it in um, and so I'm very very tomboy but I also then recognize that men don't know some things and they're 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 just doing what society has taught them what the patriarchy has taught them so I really aspire to reach out to men specifically men of color but all men but men of color because I feel like they have a disadvantage nobody has really taken the time to allow them to be vulnerable to allow them to learn to give them a, gr a gracious space um, to come into a better understanding of sex and sexuality when you think about the black man and how hypersexualized he has been throughout history with statements like a BBC a big black cock not all black men have big penises right um, but if we continue that narrative we're continuing to sexualize them and then in our communities we're not giving them a range to have like sensitivity so I always try like my goal is to reach men of color um, in a way that um, is nurturing is loving and as a black woman my thought is always if I'm not gonna love you then who's gonna love you so I give them the space I give them the and it's just a gracious space to be men, to fuck up, to learn. And it's been great. And it is pervasive. And I always say, I lure them in with my looks. I punch them in the face with feminism. But through my work and through the way I've moved, I've gotten letters from men like, I never understood what rape culture was until I started listening to you. 
I didn't realize I had been slut shaming my partner who experienced sexual assault. I think you might have saved my marriage wow. because nobody has ever talked to me because you have to use the language they understand. Mm -hmm. You have to use dialect and tone and, um, you know, uh, anecdotal stories to help people understand and that is how I've gotten over so dick pics can sometimes come my way that's so um, interesting I don't talk about my own personal sexuality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because like you had just mentioned I need that needs to be private for me otherwise you have none left at the end of the day none I like, left. I like that you're creating you're recognizing male sexuality along a spectrum yep and for black men it is well for Race intersects with sex yeah. in so many ways. Yep. And so when you look at black male history yep. around sex in America, yep. there is this prescription that you have to be not only hypersexual, hypermasculine. Toxic. And so what happens when you feel sad? Because men are as emotional as women. There's yep. interesting research with brain scans yep. suggesting that the reaction of the male brain to emotional stimuli is actually more intense than women's brains, but then when you ask men how they felt, they're of course less effusive in their expression of that emotion because, why? Because we've told them you are disallowed. Yep. And even in a culture that's shifting so significantly right now and male emotional and vulnerable, emotional expression, vulnerable expression, sexual expression is more broad. Yep. It's still more for white men. Yep. Um, who like to consider themselves enlightened or woke. <coughs> And so that needs to be extended far beyond just white guys with postgrad degrees or whoever right. is, is being able to access that. And that's why the work you're doing is important because you do you have to meet people where they are in their spaces, with their language, yeah. um, with an understanding of the way systems interact with our yep. sexuality. Because it's not like, oh, well, you have this individual experience. When the collective is experiencing something... Yeah. We have to look at the systems that continue to either positively or negatively perpetuate them, reinforce. Yeah, and and the thing for me is like you talk about being woke. Oh. Um, <laughs> and, and I think of hashtags, and another hashtag that comes to mind as we're talking about male sexuality and male vulnerability is the Me Too movement. Um, and this is so Started interesting. Started by a black woman in the Bronx for bodies of black women, young bodies of black women. So I've already ranted on that, and and I and I'm glad that it is bringing awareness but where's the money where's the money for the programs in the Bronx in Brooklyn in disenfranchised communities but that's neither here nor there my real question is is where's the programs for young men of color who've experienced sexual assault because we know statistically in the US one in six boys will experience sexual assault before the age of 18 and we know that that is underreported because <clears throat> in most communities men will not report and in communities of color Men are definitely not reporting because to some extent, some research shows that if it is a male or a female to a male committing the assault, or so the female is the assailant um, or the aggressor, um, they don't identify that as sexual assault. They identify it as becoming a man, as doing what you do. Um, and I, working with youth, I see that a lot and it's scary. And, and we see it in pop <clears throat> culture. So much. Young, uh, or young, basically stars. Mm -hmm talking about their first experience and how she was so much older. She was the babysitter, and it's a badge of honor. And, I mean, if you hear people's private stories, you mm -hmm. know that that's a public expression, but in private, it's traumatizing. Oh, to oh, in ways that, 
for me with some of the people I've worked with across the country, I'll never forget, um, I had a student in California that I worked with and we were talking about sexual assault and this, and, and it became, you know, this isn't a, um, a male to female. It's not meant, it's like women can be aggressive too. And a student kind of blurted out, well then I've been raped. And then after they blurted it out, it was like, cause they're kids, they realized what they had said. And you just, it was so painful for me cause I still have to teach and I need to move the class for, along quicker now because I need to get the attention off that individual and pull it back to something broader. And just then watching the body language of that student, that male student kind of sink inward because they realized that was probably the first time that had come out of their mouth. They had said it out loud, but somewhere internally, they had always felt like what had ever had happened was wrong. So that is, it is tough for me and I've seen it more times than not in communities of color. And then when I was in grad school, I bartended, kind of like you. <clears throat> and when I was bartending, um, I would tell men what I studied. Um, and the amount of men after a couple drinks that would disclose that they had been sexually assaulted, I've been on dates. I've been at happy hour. And after a couple drinks, they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, this is what I do. And then they're like, yo, I've never told anybody this. This happens to me. And All what the time, does this right? tell you? This tells you that people are desperate and they have so few resources. resources. I mean, so, I, I've been at a bar where a man will turn from hitting on me to looking for therapy like support at a bar. Oh. Well, I'm drinking, so yeah. you know you're not going to get anything good for yeah, me while yeah, I'm drinking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so. In a minute, they turn from like a carnal desire yep. to an emotional one. Yep. And again, the message here is that they don't have anywhere to turn because you think they want to turn to some random woman at the bar that they were just a moment ago trying to chat up? Right. And so you and I are doing this work where we're actually trying to do work to put ourselves out of business. Yeah. Right? Like what we're, our goal is that people have more places to turn on, to turn. Our goal is that we know that... Um, in with prevention programs with sex education yep. we can reduce these types of incidents and offer support when they do occur and we're in a climate right now where that's very anti-sex ed yes which is weird it is very 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 weird i know you are super super busy this was i just want to say thank you so much for your honesty for your authenticity and for the work. You're right, we are working to put ourselves out of business. I'm pretty sure we're gonna be working for a long time though. This is the thing, and uh, you know, it's funny, I think you look at my job and you're like, oh, that's so cool, I'd love to be doing more of that, but I look at your job and it makes me miss being in the high schools because even though it's, I, th I think, um, emotionally draining, there's, a, there's such a reward in seeing the impact you have. So you have this important impact because if we don't catch them while they're young oh, yeah. and build the foundational skills, like I'd like to see it in kindergarten. That's just talking, job. yeah, and this isn't people think, oh, sex ed in kindergarten. It's it's, it's not, not about sex. It's about consent. Yep. It's about gender. It's yep. about emotional expression. It's about vulnerability. Yep. It's about love. It's about the way we interact with everybody from your intimate partners to the person with from whom you order coffee in the morning. Yep. Yep. How do we communicate? Because relationships are all we have. Yep. So, I, yeah, I sit in admiration of the work you're doing. And, yeah, it makes me, it makes me miss it. I wish... 
I would like to do more of it. Then let's do some work together. I would love In the to. new year, 2019, we're going to we gonna make something happen. We're going to do something together. But tell my listeners, the audience, where can we find you? You can find me at Sex with Dr. Jess. So Sex with Dr. is D-R Jess and sexwithdrjess.com. Yeah, and we're going to be checking you out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been another Sexpert Positions. I had a Sexpert. We talked about our positions on <laughs> politics, on love, on relationship, and we did a little DP talking. So I feel like we've we've covered all of the bases. Um, so I'm going to sign off now. It's your girl, Michelle Hope. For Sexpert Positions, check me out at MHSexpert online on Twitter, on social media, and stay tuned for the next go-round. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me. It's your favorite unapologetic sexologist, Michelle Hope, here in the Hub. And I want to remind you to make sure you're following me at MHSexpert on IG and Twitter because each week I'm going to be delivering those sexy tips you want and answering all your questions. So hit me up on Twitter and IG using the hashtag unapologetic sexologist.